live from York. This is the Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we are joined by author, musician, and former primary school teacher David Bramwell to discuss teaching, reading, and public education. So join us tonight as we explore primary school teaching in the 90s, reading journeys from Hesse to the Moomins, and popular education for the public. Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. You join me this evening on a rare and very welcome long weekend off at that time in the year when the drive home from work becomes a starlit one and the final lesson of our teaching day, which finishes at 5pm, begins shortly after sunset. Our Year 13 students have just finished their first round of mock exams, so the last week has been taken up with marking, moderating and reporting on this first dummy run of the exam room experience. Deciding how soon and how many times to test Year 13 students is always a challenge. Schedule them too early and you can only meaningfully test students on what they did last year. Schedule them too late and you reduce the time available for students to make the changes in knowledge acquisition and skills to meet the final exams on top form. One of my colleagues likes to use a horse racing analogy to emphasize precisely how he wants his stable of chemistry thoroughbreds to be racing to the line once the public examination season begins. Others draw parallels with military campaigns with catchphrases like fail to prepare means preparing to fail. Some inevitably perhaps refer to mountain ascents for their charges. Each of these analogies, of course, reminds us that revision routines and examination room performance are as much tests of physical endurance as they are tests of intellectual strength. Sitting an A-level history paper and an A-level English literature paper on the same day, as can sometimes happen in the June series, is hard physical work, amounting to five or more hours of intensive high-speed writing. Once a student has had an extra 25% extra time allowance applied to each exam, they will have put in quite a shift at the small square folding desk for the day. Setting high quality papers and sensible exam grades also poses challenges for heads of department as they attempt to strike a sensible balance between ensuring conscientious preparation is appropriately acknowledged, identifying areas of further development, maintaining student morale and generating results that bear credible comparison with past sets of grade boundaries, while recognising that A-level exams are terminal exams. In some subjects, testing the synoptic aspect of a subject can pose particular problems. If papers contain questions that can only be fully tackled when the entire content of the course has been taught and learnt, then how can students be tested on this content less than eight weeks into their year 13 studies? 
Can a paper be made appropriately challenging by blending Year 12 and Year 13 content? And can students be rigidly held to June grade boundaries when June 2024 is still seven months away? On top of these considerations, of course, schools have to factor in Ofqual's advice on establishing appropriate conditions for employing mock exams as a means of collecting evidence of student performance to ensure resilience in the qualification system, which states that, quote, schools and colleges are encouraged to complete assessments in the first half of the academic year where possible to create greater resilience in the face of unseen, unforeseen events, end quote. And on the issue of mock marking, Ofqual states that, quote, teachers should mark the assessments in line with published exam board mark schemes and guidance where appropriate. Centres should support teachers to mark work for the same qualification to the same standard. As centres prepare students to take their qualifications, including through mock exams, those papers taken in and before 2019 and from 2023 onwards will be most useful when considering the standard of work expected at each grade. Teachers should take into account that approaches to grading were exceptional in autumn 2020 and 2021 and summer 2022. There was greater leniency in grade boundaries that is not normally applied in exams. Schools and colleges should therefore ensure they do not consider grade boundaries from these years when providing an indicative grade for students." End quote. In the English department I lead, we have responded to the problem of the synoptic nature of AQA's Literature B Elements of Crime Writing paper by teaching our students all three sets concurrently with a different teacher for each set text so that we can get through The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, Hamlet and When Will There Be Good News at a decent pace without students ever having to go back and revise a finished text from scratch. This means we can constantly draw parallels between each developing plot arc as students encounter the key events in the three texts and we can set students a full paper for the February mock exam by which time at least two of the three texts will have been read in their entirety. This approach causes quite a few timetabling headaches as the lessons are split into three uneven shares to reflect the differences in text length, but cannot. But I cannot think of a better way of preparing A-level students for the reality of English literature degrees than keeping three texts on the go at the same time. Meeting Ofqual's guideline on the representative function of mock exams here becomes pretty tough. Meanwhile, our year 11 students have started thinking about exams too, and will have an English literature and an English language paper to sit in January. Setting suitable papers for year 11 English sets is always the most challenging task, as a typical student studying both language and literature will sit at least five examination papers in the summer and a speaking and listening test as well, which could easily fill a single mock exam week on their own. So we have to make quite careful decisions about how to test our students on the first half of our set poetry anthology and our set play from last year, while making sure that our immediate classroom focus remains on making progress through our set novel, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Maintaining a good knowledge of three literature set texts alongside the content of eight or more other 
GCSE subjects really stretches students' intellectual bandwidth to a degree that reminds them that the summer term always approaches them quicker than they think. The English speaking and listening tests, for example, fall in mid-March. Elsewhere, my colleagues and I have begun working on the classroom tasks and close down tasks that mean the Christmas season will soon be with us. So reports are being written, half term grades are being assigned and boarding house Christmas celebrations are being planned. Strangely, our sixth form poetry society met for the traditional Christmas secret Santa gathering on Monday evening as the shortness of the Advent season this year made this the last available Monday before we depart for the holiday on the 15th of December. So we all gathered in the upper library after evening prayers to exchange our poems and cards with poems by Yeats, Hardy and others being shared over some festive themed food and drink. My Secret Santa, in recognition of some recent tutorials on the felling of the sycamore gap tree, very thoughtfully gifted me The Tree Agreement by Elise Passion, which appeared in Poetry Magazine in 2016. The neighbour calls the Siberian elm a weed tree, demands we hack it down, says the leaves overwhelm his property, the square backyard. He's collar and tie, a weed tree, branches screen buildings, subway tracks, his patch of yard. We disagree, claim back the sap, heartwood, wild bark. He declares the tree hazardous. We shelter under leaf hoard, crossway for squirrels, branch house for sparrows, jays. The balcony soaks up the shade. Chatter song drowns out cars below. Sun branches down. Leaves overwhelm. The tree will stay. We tell him no. Root deep through pavement. Elm. In tonight's show, I'm pleased to say we will have the pleasure of exploring the unexpected directions in which our personal reading journeys can take us with former primary school teacher, current author and musician, David Bramwell. A modern day Renaissance man, David has a passion for creativity and probing the limits of human knowledge that has seen him write and present a variety of documentary programmes for BBC Radio 3 and Radio 4 on topics as diverse as public speaking, rural psychedelia and weather divining. His 2010 Radio 3 programme, The Haunted Moustache, saw him win a Sony Award for a fascinating tour through the cultures of psychedelic plants, seances and a Dali model prompted by the death of his great aunt Sylvia. He has published compelling books on the history of utopias, a mind-expanding series of travel guides and studies of the occult and the strange. His current podcast series, Adventures in Utopia, takes David off on a new odyssey into the radical movements, myths and philosophies that have shaped the weirder byways of English culture. When David is not busy bringing the weird, strange and curious to the attention of his readers and listeners, he can be found quietly putting out meditative, dream-inspired folk pop with his band Oddfellows Casino. And yet David began his extraordinary career 
in the primary school classroom in the early 1990s. I'm delighted to say that David joins us on the line now. Good evening to you, David. Good evening, Christopher. And I'm hoping you can hear me. I can hear you loud and clear. Thank you for joining us on well, Teachers Talk Radio today. Thank you. <laughs> you make me sound so much more interesting than I am through that, through that wonderful, wonderful short bio at the beginning. Well, I hope my overview has given our listeners an insight into your wide-ranging career and into some of the different directions that your creativity has taken you in. But is there anything you would like to add by way of introduction? <laughs> no, I think you did a you did a magnificent job. Yeah, thank you. Well, you're clearly someone, David, who is excited by the prospect of uncovering new and often fascinatingly obscure domains of knowledge. So I suppose I should start by asking you really about your experiences as a learner in compulsory education. What route did you take through school as a pupil and then as a student? A very conventional one. So my, I was born in Scunthorpe and um, my parents being uh, aspirational moved to Doncaster when I was six. So I went from <laughs> Scunthorpe infant school and primary school to, to a, a, a local one in Doncaster and then to Hallcross Comprehensive, which had formerly been a grammar school. So some of the weird, uh, or, for, or for me, weird hangovers from the grammar school days of, of learning Latin or being made to run up and down the hill um, outside the school by our sports, sports teachers um, until we were sick um, in the middle of winter. Those, I think, were some of the hangovers from, and having had a deputy head whose name was Ichabod Jones, who, <laughs> who, um, who would give you a dead arm if your, if your top button was undone. That's all he seemed to do was just wander, prowl around the school looking like Mr. Burns from, uh, um, from The Simpsons. So, but that was, you know, the, these were the hangovers from its, from its um, former glories. So I was I was essentially at um, at a comprehensive school, um, and and from there, having done not so great in my A levels, having got two Ds and two Es, despite having tried very hard at, at a bunch of subjects that I had no aptitude for, really, um, I ended up going to Coventry Polytechnic, which was through clearing, and and sort of the the degree that I did was kind of also through clearing. It was you know it's basically I was told. Um, you can go here and do this or or you can resit and and I really wanted to get out of Doncaster I wanted to escape these um kind of depressing uh, northern industrial towns that were on the skids and so um, unwisely you know, found myself in in Coventry um which also was was going through a very difficult time back in the in the mid to late 80s so it was yeah progression from from one from one kind of tricky tricky place to another so when I finally stumbled upon Upon Brighton in, in in 1991, it was um, it was an extraordinary. <laughs> it kind of welcomed me with with open arms. Um, uh, Brighton probably has has played a, a an incredibly big role in my my love and fascination for all things strange and bohemian. But uh, but my education was was I think tip, yeah quite quite typical. And what did you make of your geography degree? Because you have moved back into various aspects of landscape and nature in recent years. How, how did that work for you? Well, um, well, I saw so I did, I ended up being I ended up doing geography and, and maths at degree level, largely because I failed everything else. Um, so having having done appallingly with my A levels, I was I was sort of pushed into a thing called combined science, 
at Coventry Poly and did geology, economics and geography in my first year. I failed all of them apart from geography. And I was taken to one side and told that if I change those other subjects and reset the first year, then we can pretend that I was on the wrong course rather than I'd failed. It was just it was the wrong course <laughs> for me. So, so, so I, did, I did physics and maths and geography. And, uh, and I, I sort of dazzled my geography tutors by, by um, dazzled is the wrong word, also <laughs> flabbergasted them by managing to get a lower mark, um, having resat exactly the same exam questions and done exactly the same year twice, but managed to, to get a lower mark the second time doing that. Um, they thought that was quite, you know, quite, quite a thing to do. Uh, and then I failed the physics. So I'd failed most things, but I hadn't failed maths and geography. And, and they said, oh, just go and do bloody maths and geography and specialise in those. And my dad was a maths lecturer at, at um, Scunthorpe Polytechnic and then, uh, sorry, not Polytechnic, the, the Tech College and then Doncaster Tech College, mainly teaching, teaching minors at the time. And so maths was sort of in the blood. So the maths I found easy, but I, I never was... I was not particularly drawn to, to to ever want to do that as a as a main subject. The geography, I think, I was interested in in you know in land and nature, and and so probably paved the way to to some small degree into my interest in psychogeography. But um, but psychogeography was not that was a, wasn't a term that was around in the mm. in the eighties, and, and and it certainly wasn't really how any aspects of geography to the best of my knowledge you know what I remember how it was taught it was fairly straight um so yeah I suppose interest in land interest in what place means to us was was what I took from that degree if there's one piece of knowledge I remember because I don't remember much it was that um we have we have this story that that Coventry was um was sort of Germany's the bombing of Coventry was Germany's uh, revenge response to Dresden and that Coventry was, you know, a beautiful medieval city like Oxford and Cambridge and that the Germans, mm. uh, d- d- you know, destroyed it. But what I learned on my course in the first year was that the Germans destroyed half of it uh, and then the council kind of finished the, rest. The, the council finished the job um, and, you know, found myself living in a, in a city with a lot of listed buildings um, not beautiful buildings, but unusual buildings, you know, like a rotating concrete burger joint, you know, wimpy <laughs> bar, they're like one of a kind and for good reason. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was, that was, that was one of the, one of the few nuggets of information was, um, was, yeah, it wasn't all the Germans. It was, you know, we did a good job as well in kind of leveling um, places like Coventry and saying, okay, let's start again. And, and um with a you know with a heavy dose of brutalism which which still i think kind of mars the city in in some ways some of the architecture and then you moved to brighton brighton of course a very different city a different kind of atmosphere in the city you've got the seafront as well of course and on its way up certainly in the late 90s um how and why did you get into primary school teaching david after this difficult relationship with education earlier on <laughs> yeah. um well ever since ever since a very young age i'd been obsessed with music and back in the 80s there were not opportunities for me to do the kind of music education that i would have wanted to nowadays there are the, the, you know, there's loads of great opportunities but i would have been interested in doing um music production um contemporary music 
um, popular music. Uh, there was only really classical music that I could I could do at O level and beyond, um, and I didn't have a connection with the music teachers at school. They were they were very traditional, um, and they you know and they played as um, there's a Billy Connolly sketch, isn't there, where he talks about his his music teacher sitting there um, shouting the word appreciate at them whilst whilst playing you know playing these these archaic records appreciate and and I, I think my music lessons were a bit like that i was interested in in the stuff i heard on the radio i was interested in in the 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 albums that i got from from doncaster music library contemporary stuff and um started i got a keyboard when i was little when i was 11 started composing um pretentious nonsense um, on, on that keyboard but by the time i reached university i'd already started playing in bands and um and that was always my number one passion really was 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 music and so i always had this idea that whatever i did would be alongside the, you know i would do something alongside the music as a backup that was my dad i mean my dad was like always you know you've got to have a you've got to have a plan b you've got to have a plan b it's like okay well i'll get into teaching i'll teach music that would be nice i'll teach music in a in a primary school um and so i came to brighton joined bands and got a record deal in in new york in america in 1993, just when I finished my PGCE and managed to land the dream job, um, and that was teaching music in a primary school in Brighton for a day and a half a week. The, the weekend began Tuesday lunchtime, and that made me very <laughs> happy. Uh, and that just seemed like the right amount of, I'm, I'm, I'm sure some listeners <laughs> will be nodding their heads. Um, <laughs> I can hear just, the heads being nodded as you speak. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it seemed like a good amount of time to be teaching um, and uh, during the week, that is. And, and um, I didn't imagine. I'd, so, yeah, I got this great job and didn't imagine that I'd be I'd be in that um, in that job for more than six months because things all looked very promising. You know, we, we went over to to New York the the Easter of um, was it the Easter of 1993, I think it was. Um, and. Um, and then, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah, falling out with with band members, the record label being sued by by a, a former a singer, by a, someone who had formerly been signed to the label for several million. All sorts, every problem you could imagine was kind of uh, fell upon us and, and the label the following year when the record came out. So, um, so I ended up ended up staying in the job for twenty two years, um, always part time, sometimes doing. Uh, supply teaching, sometimes covering for other teachers in the school, which I really liked. But being given, by and large, for the first 20 years, being given almost free reign to teach whatever I wanted in kind of whatever manner I wanted, um, because music was partly because partly because I was trusted and also partly, I think, because music wasn't taken very seriously then and there weren't requirements for a huge amount of paperwork or measuring the success um, of the pupils and when that sort of started creeping in in the in the last few years that I was teaching it um, I found that more um, intrusive and unwelcome and and it, it sort of forced me to take a more mechanical approach to my teaching because the only way you could prove that uh, that learning has taken place in with a with a subject like like music is to is to demonstrate, get the kids to demonstrate something mechanical, like, you know, they can play five notes on a keyboard with five fingers, you know, um, that kind of thing. And, um, and that wasn't as enjoyable for me or for the, for the children. Yeah. But what did you most enjoy about your experience in the primary school environment, David? 
working with children of that age is just they've just got this boundless energy and enthusiasm you know most of them did and and it was more about i've i've done i've done lecturing at university i i there's a swedish school uh, in 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 portslade nearby that i go and, and teach at sometimes i haven't had any experience of secondary teaching but you know i know that great transformation that happens i've seen the harry enfield sketch <laughs> that that kind of happens from <laughs> primary to to secondary and then there's you know there's a there's a transformation isn't there with with primary school teaching, it was it was like, how do you contain this energy? How do you contain this enthusiasm? It takes so little um, to, uh, to to get them uh, excited and motivated, or that's that's what I found with a subject like music. I I was really lucky to be there with some some inspiring head teachers when the basement of the school was and was being redeveloped. I was consulted as to what I wanted for the room which was wonderful. I mean, how many teachers have, have that opportunity? And I said, you know what? I don't want neon strip lighting. I want, um, I want some really nice lighting set into the ceiling on dimmers. I'd like some standard lamps put into the room. I don't want any desks. Let's get some really nice carpet. Um, I used to burn incense down there. Um, we were in the basement. Um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was an old toilet that was transformed, but it was, it was lovely when it finished. And um, I used to make the kids take their shoes off when they came in. So there was a sense of a ritual entering into a different space in which a sort of different kind of learning would take place. And, um, and the kids responded really well to that. And I found that I could be quite creative in the, in the projects and the lessons that I did teaching, you know, subjects that um, getting them to listen to things quite experimental, which kids are so open and receptive to from, you know, from people like Ivor Cutler and the Bonzo Dog Band um, to the Beatles to, you know, experimental jazz. I don't know if you know the Ken Nordine album Colours, where he recorded 40 odd um, very short spoken word pieces over semi-improvised jazz, um, where he's he's uh, kind of giving giving color um, and, and giving character and giving stories to the colors. And that was such a lovely thing to teach the children because it would get them thinking about experimental music, how music and, and words and sounds go together, get them thinking about the creativity around writing a minute's worth of text around a color, writing a story about a color, giving a personality to a color or thinking about the associations. So, so many different things that could be taught within a simple little project like that. But actually that project would run for weeks and weeks and weeks as we, you know, broke it down into its into its different parts. And then at the end, um, I mean, we're going back, you know, nearly 20 years, I would I would end up making uh, compilation CDs for, for every class so the kids would be able to take home um, all the, you know, the music that they'd made and the music that all their classmates had made, classmates had made. And I did that with songwriting as well. So we do, I teach them blues and get them to improvise around 12 bar blues and, um, and get them to do songwriting in, in, in year six and write their own songs. And, um, so always with a view to them having, having something to take home to listen to. So there wasn't paperwork. Um, and you know, and I couldn't really, no one could really sit down and say whether a song written by, you know, a group of children at the age of 10 was grade a or B or C whatever. But, but if they, if they participated, if they were inspired by it, that to me was was the that was the most important part of the job, really, to get them into the subject. Yeah, music seems to fall into that same category as the visual arts, doesn't it? When you move into a school setting, 
it's one of those things where you can be as ambitious as you like, provided you've got the children with you. Yeah. And you can really produce some quite fantastic pieces of work in the time that you have. And in many senses, actually, the primary school experience of taking students through topic-based learning, which isn't always the case now in some of the big academy chains I know in England, but it is, is in many ways much closer to the real-world creative projects that you're kind of involved in when you move into music or when you move into art and promotions or when you move into podcasting or when you move into uh, research work for popular books, there's that sense of you can pick it up and put it down and move on to something else. Mm. But you're always constantly moving forward and following new pathways with each new element of the project. Well, and so there's some... something they quite like about that. Yeah, when, if I think back to, to um, one of the highlights of my education, it was, it was in year six at, um, at Willow Junior School in Doncaster, where in the final year, so many of the subjects were, if not all of the subjects really, well, maybe not sport, but um, were, were centred around a, a trip to Northumberland. And it was the first time I'd been away from home for a week. And, you know, we looked at the geography and we looked at the history. We looked at the wildlife. We looked at the bird life of um, Annick and sea houses and the Farne Islands. And, um, and of course, art connected with that. I'm not sure that the maths would have connected with it, but we wrote diaries when we were there. You know, we, we, did, we did research into, into some of the topics, St. Cuthbert, St. Bede, um, Annick Castle. And so the... Yeah, it was very driven by that theme, and of course, it was it was grounded that that education was grounded in something very real that we would be there for a week and immerse ourselves. I, I'd see a puffin, you know. I'd actually I'd written about it, I'd read about it. I'd get to see a puffin. I get to go on a boat trip and see all those beautiful nesting terns on the Fine Islands. And we had to protect ourselves by putting putting bags over our heads because they were. Um, they were breeding at the time and they would attack you. Um, I remember my Adidas bag getting, you know, but I'm sure nowadays they probably <laughs> wouldn't be allowed to take um, a class full, you know, of kids onto a, onto a, an island where birds would be attacking them. But well, I've um, seen I've seen some head teachers down from my part of the country in oh, you have? the southwest who've taken their children off, primary school children off to Lundy Island, actually. And Lundy right. Island is an incredible place. And looking at some of the stuff they've done with the primary school children in that school is just phenomenal. Yeah. They really get, you know, as close to nature as you can reasonably get. And they're reminded of the kind of wildness of nature in a relatively mm -hmm. safe environment. Because if you look over the cliff edge on a rough sea day on Lundy, you will see <laughs> the sea churning up mm -hmm. and you'll see nature in all its violent glory on the seascape so yeah this this sense of kind of imaginative freedom i think which tends to get shut down a little bit as students move into the secondary sector yeah 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 it was um it was uh probably probably the thing i remembered the most it's funny isn't it like when we when we think back on our education and the strongest memories are uh, they they're they're more inclined to be certain teachers, the teachers that inspired us or the teachers that we disliked the most. Um, hard to remember specific lessons, but, you know, like the time somebody brought in a load of owls, <laughs> you know, I remember it's like, that was just, yes. that was the just The show amazing. and tell days. Yeah, the show and tell days. And the, um, 
you know, the school plays. So one of the things that one of one of my happiest memories from school, I went to middle school as well. I forgot to mention that I went to between between junior and 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 the comprehensive. It was a middle school for two years. I guess they've all gone now. Yeah, I was at middle school too, actually. So in Devon, we still clung on to the primary, well, first school, middle school, high school system for quite a while. And when my middle school was deliberately built in the Victorian period to provide access to the countryside or the outdoors, green spaces um, from every room you were in. So we were in a big kind of hollow quad with our classrooms on the side of the outside of one corridor. So you could walk through either door and find yourself in the school garden looking for uh, frog spawn and bringing it back to the fish tank and putting it in there so it became tadpoles and then it become frogs and you go and put the frogs back, all very kind of Seamus Heaney-like. And (laughs) it was wonderful, A, because we had the natural daylight in the classroom pretty much the whole time during the school year until we got to this kind of point in in the school year. But also that sense of the space was out there and it didn't take much for you to be in it, even though you were sitting at your desk looking at your rolling blackboard, whatever it was where you were doing in class. There was always the sense that when break time came, you were going to be out there outside in the green. And it was it was really, really beautiful, actually. Mm. Mm, Yeah, ours ours was a lovely, um, uh, lovely space as well. Um, But the thing it would what what I was remembering about that time at, at middle school was a music lesson where to my great surprise, we were we were told by the teacher that we could we could come dressed up and do a presentation on on a band or a style of music that we liked, and I just thought this was the best thing ever, um, and I I just got into heavy metal, you know, so I wanted to I wanted to come in my denim jacket, you know, as a as a baby faced twelve year old, you know, with a with a starting to grow myself a nice mullet, you know, in, in nineteen eighty one, whenever it was. Um yeah. and uh, and coming in with my denim jacket on with with bands on the back and and talk about I think it was either Iron Maiden or A C D C or Motorhead, I can't remember. Anyway, I just thought this was the best thing. And so when I started teaching music at primary level, I thought, well this, you know, I, I never had those opportunities at school or at university where anyone took me to one side and said, this is how to do a presentation. And it's important to be, you know, to, to get confident with public speaking, because you'll probably have to do it later on in life. I didn't imagine that it would become an integral part of my life or something that I, I, I uh, found myself really enjoying doing and wanting to do. At the time, I was terrified of, you know, like most people of public speaking, speaking in front of my peers. Um, so, but at school, it was great because it was, you know, in front of my classmates and it was something that I loved. So when I started teaching music at primary level, I'd introduce that to every every year. And I thought, if I give the kids the opportunity to choose any medium that they want in which to um, to share with their peers a style of music or a band or a singer or, um, you know, or something, you know, something musical, um, it could be whatever they wanted. Then they could go away if they wanted to be really creative. They could make a little film about it. Sometimes they would. They'd find a, um, a means to interview a musician if they weren't too too famous or if there was there was a family connection which sometimes there were they could do a straightforward presentation with with powerpoint um they could make it a mock interview they could dramatize it they could bring art into it and i remember i, I the pre, the premise that I, what i said to them was 
you can do it in twos, but but not any bigger than twos because there's always the danger that that somebody does the heavy lifting and somebody doesn't do much. So two two's a good number. I remember these four girls coming to me and saying, "Can we work together as a four? And I said, ah, it, "It's too many." I said, "Oh, it's you know, I said, my rule is that it's sort of two only." And of course, you know, they did the sort of the doughy eyed thing. Um, and and I said, "Look, if you if you want to work as a four, I get to choose your subject, your topic." And they said, all right, whatever it is, we'll go and do it. <laughs> so I said, you can go and do a presentation about the avant-garde experimental <laughs> San Franciscan band, The Residents. Right? I don't know if you know The Residents. But the residents, I don't know The Residents. The Residents are, are still going after 50-odd years, and people still don't know who they are. So they have never shown their identity. They've never um, revealed themselves. And they're most famous for wearing eyeballs on their heads. There's an amazing album they did called Eskimo in 1978. And they're, and they're dressed in sort of top hat and tails, but with eyeballs instead of heads or you know, eyeballs on top of their heads. And those girls went away and they made papier-mâché eyeballs. And they, and they dug into the, you know, and the residence music is not, accessible uh, you know it's very i mean maybe it is to kids actually but but you know it's quite hard in the years a lot of it and um uh eskimos <laughs> is, is probably the most accessible album and that's still got a lot of of of, uh, of sort of chanting and uh, and wind sounds but others are are very 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 avant god anyway they went and did the most amazing um presentation and they did a lot of it in mime and then they made a little video and they totally embraced it and that was one of the things that i loved about the job was um you know being being able to set set a bit of homework like that and they would and they would do it with glee and also the surprise sometimes that of the of the topics and themes that the children would bring to me the school was was based near brighton station and or still is based near brighton station so a certain you know a lot of parents working in the media and traveling to London, handy for London. So um, if I said to, if I said to any child, what do your mum and dad do? The answer was usually mum works for the BBC and dad plays in the levelers. That was, I'd say that was, you know, most of the, uh, most of the two, 300 kids that uh, that were there. That was, you know, well, not all of them played in the levelers because I think there's only five members, but um, so, Quite so unique there, was, there, was a, there was a great, yeah, pardon. Quite a unique demographic. Quite a unique group, yeah, yeah. But they were obviously they they, they were exposed to um, to a, a wide variety of music. Um, so uh, yes, we went off topic there, didn't we? I forgot what um, I forgot what your question was about fifteen minutes ago. But uh, hopefully, <laughs> it was an interesting answer. Yeah, it certainly was. Well, thanks for sharing your initial thoughts on creativity and the classroom with us, David. It seems to me that primary school teaching is excellent training, actually, for a staggering range of creative careers. At one moment, you might be tracing the first few letters of the alphabet in sand for an early years child who is just getting to grips with the fundamental signs of our written language. And in the next, you might be demonstrating to say children in year six, how an electrical circuit works once the battery, some crocodile clips, a switch and a light bulb have all been organized in the correct manner. And in many metaphorical senses too, I suppose one is watching various light bulbs come on every school day as our youngest learners move from novices to adepts. And it sounds like your students you just talked about there were adepts in the minutes and the hours of their learning. I think so. And, and also, let's not forget that 
in education, you always find yourself in a situation that you can't believe, um, a situation that you're never, ever, ever prepared for. I remember taking a class cover once, and it was a baking hot summer's day, and, and a bee, um, the size of an egg, just flew in through the window and landed on the eyelid of a of a girl in the class. So you know the bee the bee flew at her. She closed her eyes, and the bee landed on her on her eyelid, and she screamed. And the girl next to her said, "She's allergic to bee stings." You know, like she has she'll go into anaphylactic shock, and um, and I had to act quick. <laughs> to act quickly it's like oh god what do i do what I, you know i'm unprepared for this um and so i flicked it off with my finger um <laughs> and you, you know, know you find... <laughs> do you know I, a couple of years ago you in the same same thing <laughs> almost as weird but slightly weirder in one sense um so i work in a boarding school and i was on my boarding school uh homework supervision round in the evening from about seven o'clock till ten o'clock and the house mistress who was looking after the house was busy doing something else. And one of my students came down, a year 13 student, so an 18-year-old came down and said, so you've got to come up to the common room. There's something happening in the common room. So I went up to the common room and the entire year group in our boarding house, so there must have been about 15 sick form students all standing along the corridor outside the common room, kind of shaking and looking at each other. I said, oh, what's what's happened in the common room? They said, oh, sir, we turned all the lights out. I said, why is that? I said, there's a bat in the common room, sir. You're going to have to get rid of it because nobody else is around. <laughs> and so I remember saying, you, you know, you have these moments where you think, right, it's okay, girls. I've done this kind of thing before. I've got a system. I just need two of you to watch the door, two of you to go that end and make sure no one comes in while I'm removing the bat. And this, this bat, I did manage to get it out of the window eventually um, using the old tried and tested method of standing very still, waiting for it to land on a curtain and then very carefully twisting the curtain round towards the window. So it did eventually leave. And that's one of the things that I've been associated with ever since in that school, in that boarding house. That day when I had to remove the bat from the common room. And it's exactly like you say, you turn up just expecting to mark a few books and maybe <laughs> help someone solve a maths equation you can barely understand yourself. And then by the time you get to nine o'clock, you end up being asked to release the bat, I suppose. <laughs> Very good. Well, I wonder if we might move on to think about in the second part of the show, David, your journey as a reader and perhaps explore some of your thoughts on what we might learn from children's fiction, notably the Moomin saga, which I know you're a fan of. Does that mm. sound okay? That sounds lovely. I'd love to, yeah. And that's coming up right after this. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. 
In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, Bet UK is back, and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as Tech User Labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. School summer holidays are often a hot topic, but they made the news again in The Guardian as leaders in Wales appear to be considering changes. According to reports, Wales's minority Labour administration wants to shrink summer breaks from six weeks to five and eventually reduce it to four weeks. The plan would see the time added to half-term breaks in October and May. The proposal would equalise the length of terms and break the connection with Easter, by fixing the timing of the spring break regardless of when the religious festival falls. The newspaper says the plans follow research by the government which suggests that parents struggle to organise and pay for childcare over the summer. Plaid Cymru, which supports the proposal, said in a statement that the current calendar was outdated as it was designed a long time ago and that some families find the summer break very long and impacting negatively on their well-being. However, the article also points out that evidence of the harm to learning from school holidays is unclear, as much of the evidence comes from the United States, where summer holidays can be up to 12 weeks long rather than the six to seven weeks in the UK. John Hattie, Professor of Education at the University of Melbourne, said the effects from school holidays are very small and there is little reason to believe that the length of the school year has much effect at all. A study from 2019 that looked at pupils from primary schools in an area of high deprivation in Scotland and England found no effect on reading skills. In Northern Ireland, schools typically have eight weeks off in the summer, but generally have results in exams that are better than those in England or Wales. However, a 2022 study did find evidence of worsening mental health in some age groups over long summer breaks. Surveys done in Wales found 60% of parents said they were quite happy with the school year as it is. In 2013, then Education Secretary Michael Gove gave schools in England the power to choose the timing of holidays, 
but more schools kept the six weeks. The BBC News website reports on the Beyond Ofsted inquiry. The inquiry is chaired by former schools minister Lord Knight and is funded by the National Education Union. The report from the inquiry recommends that schools should instead be responsible for their own improvement plans. Ofsted has responded by repeating its previous statement that inspections are needed to ensure a high quality education. The inquiry said that Ofsted was now seen by many as toxic and not fit for purpose and in need of major reform. The removal of single word judgments was also recommended and this echoed another report on school improvement released earlier by the Institute for Public Policy Research, which also called for narrative style judgments rather than single words. The Beyond Ofsted inquiry recommended stopping Ofsted from having direct contact with schools and instead schools should draw up their own improvement plans, which would make them accountable to parents and the wider local community. Lord Knight, speaking to the BBC, said Ofsted created a culture of fear in our schools. His report also said that Ofsted had become under-resourced for the high-stakes job expected of it. A spokesperson for Ofsted said nine out of ten schools say inspections helped them to improve. In related news, the current Chief Inspector of Schools, Amanda Spielman, has written in her final annual report about parents being increasingly willing to challenge school rules in England. She described the unwritten contract between home and school as fractured and that it will take time to repair. The report is broadly positive, but draws attention to a shift in behaviour, attendance and attitudes to education since the pandemic, describing it as leaving a troublesome legacy. Full details of her comments can be found across media outlets. Teach First has celebrated its 20th anniversary, with three former Prime Ministers praising the charity's work in tackling education inequalities. According to Teach First's own website newsfeed, the charity has recruited more than 16,000 teachers to work in disadvantaged areas across England. Teach First CEO Russell Horby reaffirmed the charity's mission to help Britain's most disadvantaged children to achieve their full potential. Finally, student immigration data has been released, with Home Secretary James Cleverley stating the biggest drivers of immigration to the UK are students and healthcare workers. He further commented that this was testament to our world-leading university sector. According to data, Indian nationals account for over one quarter of all sponsored study grants, followed by Chinese nationals. The education sector relies heavily on students applying to UK universities for significant funding. But there is also political pressure to reduce net immigration. Any plans to make changes to the current system will be monitored carefully. Although for now, the focus remains on illegal migration rather than legal routes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Well, welcome back to our show on primary school teaching, reading journeys and public education with author and former primary school teacher David Bramwell. In the opening section of the show, we learnt about David's experience in the classroom, both as a teacher and as a learner, and about the ways in which David has turned his love of creativity and the sharing of knowledge to his other creative projects. 
It's very obvious to me, David, that your enthusiasm for reading seems to underpin much of your development as a teacher, a writer, a musician, and a seeker after knowledge. How did you set out on your reading journey as a child and what avenues did it take you down? Well, you might be surprised <laughs> with some of the things that uh, that happened to me along the way. I, I grew up in a town that didn't have any bookshops at all. No bookshops. Doncaster had, had no bookshops when I was a kid. Um, I used to go to Wakefield, to, to, which had a small bookshop, and I used to steal books from the school book um, cupboard, books that had been on the syllabus but were no longer in use. Uh, that was where I got the most interesting literature from. There wasn't much in the library either. Doncaster Library wasn't great for, for sort of classic, you know, or, or counterculture literature. So it was weirdly, it was my violin lesson in the school um, book cupboard where I'd, I'd go in and I'd wait for Mrs. Chesson and I'd be looking around and there's just been these huge towers of books with with titles like Catcher in the Rye or, or Catch-22 or Lord of the Flies and, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, all covered in dust, books that were no longer on the syllabus. Um, and I think, well, no one's going to miss one of these, are they? They're not, you know, they're probably just going to get pulped. So I would just, I would take a book. <laughs> you know, this is when I got to a certain age, like 15 or something. I'd just take a book home and and um, and read them, and and I got to read some brilliant stuff um, through that. Um, but it wasn't really till I reached Coventry, where which had secondhand bookshops and you know a decent library and all the rest of it, that um, I start. I sort of discovered a real passion for um, for nonfiction. As, as well as kind of difficult existentialist stuff that I think I felt it my duty to read at that age, you know, reading Sartre and, and Hess and, and Camus, um, um, books without any gags in. Um, and, uh, but discovering people like Wilhelm Reich and Rudolf Steiner and Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell and Alan Watts and Alistair Crowley, that, that stuff really turned me on and I think uh, sent me on a particular, a particular direction. But as a, as a child, the books that... Uh, that really that stayed with me that that still enchant me are the books written by for children by by Dovey Anson the Moomin books um, I still pick up and read those and I've been doing that for over 40 years now and how did you come across the Moomin books David were, they were you in drawn the to them from the cartoon or <laughs> did you come to them through the print I came to them through print, so they they I must have found them in the in the school library when at, at primary school, um, and I don't remember which one was the uh, probably Finn Family Moomin Troll was the first one I read, but it was Moomin Land Midwinter that was that I've read not every winter since I was about nine, but most winters, <laughs> so I I probably read the book I'd say at least thirty times. And I gave a talk about it last year. I gave a talk about the about themes of migration, queerness, and paganism in that book, which are there um, and uh, helped me. I suppose. I suppose. Yeah, reading a book to give a talk about it makes you read it in a different way, doesn't it? And I was delighted that I could find new things about that um, about that book. Yeah, forty years on, I find I find her artwork, her complexity of characters, um, a sort of a streak of melancholia and weirdness that 
permeates all of her children's books. I just found that really enchanting as a kid, and I and I still do now. The fact that there's a great pagan fire right in the middle of, of Moominland Me Winter as well. I loved that as a kid. And all these strange... I'm, I'm looking at the artwork now as we speak. I've got it on the wall. All these strange shadowy characters that dance around this fire, the fire to bring back the sun, which Moomin Troll, who's you know having a coming-of-age experience, having woken up in, in wintertime when Moomin's hibernate and he should be asleep and he's woken up to a landscape that is dark and hostile and it's cold and he's out of his comfort zone and he's got nobody to help him. And, uh, and all these strange animals don't really want to be friends with him. Not many of them do. And they have this great pagan fire, which he thinks the sun's going to return properly, but instead he just peeps over the horizon and then disappears again, which makes him really angry. He gets petulant and he, and he goes and kind of smashes a room up. Um, or he doesn't do that. Sorry, he he goes and opens a door that he's been told not to open to a to a wardrobe, and he he lets out I think some invisible shrews. I think that's what he does. Um, but I love the I love the fact that the book is there are creatures who are difficult and arch and reticent, or um, you know they they they're difficult to like, or they or they suffer extreme loneliness. And as a kid, I found I found the moving books to be so much more honest about the complexities of personality rather than the more sort of black and white, you know, you know, evil guy, you know, hero guy sort of stories that you might read, you know, like kind of famous five and those, those kind of books. The Moomins were populated by characters who were uptight, um, you know, <laughs> who were too boisterous, uh, who were... Um, who are cowardly, and um, and that book is that, that book is you know is is also it's got the most beautiful phrases in it. There's a chapter called the lonely and the rum, um, uh, which also refers to the light, shy, and the unreal, and these are all references to the characters that only feel comfortable coming out at night because that's when they can be themselves. And Dovi Jansen having been in a, a long-term relationship with a woman at a time when it was illegal, it was, you know, it was an imprisonable offence um, in, um, in, in Finland, uh, that, uh, that I get the sense that, that there was an expression of this in, in this and other books, not least because her partner appears uh, in this book as well. So her, her, her real-life partner, with the most amazing name of Too Licky, uh, <laughs> um, becomes Too Ticky, who becomes kind of Moomin Troll's spirit guides or spirit guide equivalent, you know, from fairy tales, becomes someone who helps him navigate through this strange wintry landscape and someone who is wiser than him and someone who's got like a Zen master uh, quality to the way in which she relates to the world around him. Even something as sensitive a subject like death, where the squirrel dies. Oh, that's a fantastic quotation, that one. Yeah. Do you have the quotation with you? Ah, um, Death what of the a, squirrel. Oh, do you know what? It's um, brilliantly done. I don't remember who says it. It's it's too ticky who says it. I've got it here, actually. I've got it here. It's, oh, go on, read it. When one's dead, one's dead. This squirrel will become earth all in his time. And still later on, they'll grow new trees from him with new squirrels skipping about in them. Do you think that's so very sad? Which I think perfectly captures that sense of 
awareness that the end is coming, but also a slightly more difficult thing to grasp, I think, an awareness it, that things will carry on without you being there and yeah, that they have no no direct response to your leaving the universe at all. I'm really, yeah, I'm really glad you, you picked up on that quote because, because yeah, two Tiki takes on a, a kind of a Zen master um, like character um, w- within that book. And um, I mean, I've got a quote here actually um, from her later on um, in reference to what I was saying earlier on when talking about the creatures that, that um, Moomin Troll experiences. And she says, there's such a lot of things that have no place in summer and autumn and spring. Everything that's a little shine, a little rum some kinds of night animals and people that don't fit in with others and that nobody really believes in. They keep out of the way all the year. And then when everything's quiet and white and the nights are long and most people are asleep, then they appear. And, and I, you know, as a child, you know, how many of us felt like we didn't fit in um, at school or, or, you know, or didn't fit in in general with the world around us and to read a book in which you're sort of, you, you can relate to characters who, who, who feel that awkwardness too. And you can see that, see in the way that she, she writes the interactions between them. You know, the Grok, the Grok who just wants company, who just wants to keep warm, and the Grok is the one who comes and sits on, on that fire, on that pagan fire to welcome back the sun. And all she does is just put it out and leaves a, a patch of ice and all the creatures just drift away and she's left there with the cold and with her loneliness, which is never resolved. I think, you know, the... the the difficulties that the characters experience, that they're not resolved. And and these things aren't easily resolved for us in in life. It's not black and white. I think I found kids' books too too black and white. And and, and as you say, to to have a book which gives a different perspective on death like that, a very sort of pagan um, philosophical approach to death, I found really liberating. Even even as a kid, I was thinking, I haven't read stuff like this before. This is great. Um, And so that, you know, that helped me keep that attachment and love of those books throughout the decades. Yeah, I also remember reading them when I was um, younger as well, and being struck by the strangeness of the Moomin Troll household. I mean, it is a bunch of misfits in many senses. We've got, I mean, I don't quite know why little Mai is there <laughs> most of the time. She's she there happens to spread to... mischief. That's why she's there. <laughs> yeah, she happens to be my daughter's favourite character. When I asked her why for tonight, she said, Oh, because she speaks in an annoying voice when you read it. <laughs> so that's what she that's what she associates she's a, with. Tr- she's a bit of a trickster, Mai. little Mai. Yeah. Yeah, she certainly has that Loki quality, doesn't she, that yeah, goes back does. to Scandinavian uh, mythology as well. And when you look at the text, you can quite it's it's quite easy to see um, the makeup of a primary school classroom on story yeah. time assembled yes. in front of you, people from different backgrounds and with different hopes and dreams. Did you get the chance to read any Moomins to your children when you were in primary school? I didn't. I didn't because because uh, because I was mainly teaching music. There were times when I was doing classroom cover, but but never for a long enough period that um, that we could sit down and and hope to, to, to finish a book. So, so no, I didn't, I didn't have that, that pleasure, which was, um, uh, which I would have loved. I would have absolutely loved to have, um, particularly to have read this book to them. So you say you return to this story most years, this particular book, what particularly appeals to you? What do these tales 
mean for you as an adult reader? I think it's, it's as I said earlier, it, it's sort of finding themes that I hadn't really noticed before. So it was only it was only last year reading it and thinking about, you know, one of the topics that that, you know, sadly is in the news again and again and again of, of prejudices against migration and, you know, having seen just what's happened in, in Holland getting in a far right um, or, the, or, the, or the, the far right getting the most votes. Um, noticing that there is a theme of migration in this book and that this is the kind of book, I mean, forgive me for sharing my politics here, but I think this is the kind of book that if you happen to be unlucky enough to, you know, to be to, in the same family as, as you know, kind of Nigel Farage and his kids, if he's got any kids, I don't know. Um, this is the kind of book I think you could buy um, for, for, for somebody with certain prejudices for their kids and it would slip under the radar and they'd, and they'd think, oh, this is all right. You know, this is not... This is not a book that's gonna that's gonna turn my kids into lefto weirdies. Um, but actually, the, the the themes are really subtly done. There's a beautiful theme of migration in it, where it it gets cold in is it the Lonely Valley? I think it's called. And some of the creatures sort of drift over into Moomin Valley in search of food and warmth. And Moomin Troll is he's quite a conservative and at times cowardly character, and he doesn't like that these creatures are sort of turning up and hanging out in their house and particularly doesn't like the fact that they're, they're going into the jam um, cellar and they're scoffing all of the jam. And, and Tutik is there to say, but you've got more than enough jam. You've got more than enough space. And what would your, what would Moomin Mama say if she was not hibernating? She would welcome these people um, because, because you have and they haven't. They haven't got anything. They've come here out of desperation. So why not make them feel at home? Um, and there's even a bit where they where they burn the sofa, I think, as well, you know. Um, and and again, you know, he's he's reprimanded for for um, for complaining about this because they've got I don't know they've got two sofas or the, or the sofa was old and you know needed burning. But um, there's some some yeah some very subtle themes like that that are sort of brought in, but but very much about inclusivity. The family are very welcoming. What I liked as a kid was that this was a family that welcomed strangers into their home, particularly Moomin Mama. Moomin Papa's a bit sort of on the spectrum, I think. He's fiddling with his rain gauge and he's never quite there. And they mm. are all loosely based on on Dovi Janssen's own experiences of, of family life. Her father had PTSD um, from, the, from the Civil War and so th- there was not a good relationship between the two of them. But as a kid reading those books, it was, it's like, it was a family I wanted to be part of because you felt that you would be welcomed, you would be loved unconditionally and you would have adventures. And, you know, what more would you want out of life? <laughs> it's peculiar as well, isn't it, when you take into account the complex historical culture that exists at that time in Finland, because, of course, Tove Janssen is a Swedish-speaking novelist who's born in 1914 when the Grand Duchy of Finland is part of the Russian Empire. So there's a real complex sense of I think in the book, people trying to work out who they are mm. and to which culture they belong. Now, Finland's gone to quite extraordinary lengths ever since to make sure that the line between Finland and Russia is a very clearly defined one. Do you get any sense of the lingering politics in the book when you read it? I can't say that I have, but then I, but then I can't say I've been looking for it. So that might be something I'll look for maybe this year when I read it. Um, 
I, I think in the past it's been more um, sexual politics and um, magic and paganism as well. I joined I joined a druidic order a few years ago, and and I gave this talk to the druids in Glastonbury last summer, I think it was, or was it last winter? Probably last winter. And um, so I was looking, I was looking for for pagan themes of which of which there you know there are there are many within the practices within within the the family particularly particularly Moomin Mama with the rituals that take place around that solstice midwinter um, fire in the middle of the book and and the presence of magic as well you know there are characters who are invisible um, there are there's a ritual that takes place with a with a, a, a horse made of ice. Um, with with two ticky, I think it's with two ticky. Um, so those are the themes that I've I've looked for. So, but the pol- but politics, no, but I will. And what do you make of the pagan imagery in the text? What does that mean to you when you read it now, as you've taken your first early steps into druidism? I find it beautiful, and as you know, as a musician, it, it's been. It's been a huge inspiration, like a, a huge inspiration. So back in, so I've been playing with the band called Oddfellows Casino for 21 years now. And we released an album in 2006 called Winter Creatures. And the, the artwork, the title, and the themes of many of the songs drew directly from, from the pagan themes of, uh, of that book. So there is a, there's a title song called Winter Creatures. There's a song called Carrying the Great Cold on Our Backs, which is taken from, it's one of the lines of verse spoken by, I think, again, it's too ticky. I think it's too ticky. Yes, it is. Um, about that ice horse. And, and that, yeah, that, that inspired me. That inspired me creatively to, to, to want to put some music to, to this imagery. And and I've never used the line "the lonely in the rum," and I think I'll use that for our next album, for a single, uh, for our next album, because it's such an evocative title. And I think um, I think that the, the song will write itself just with those just with those words. Brilliant. Well, I think we'll get to hear one of those songs at the end of the show this evening, um, before we finish. And you've certainly given us a powerful sense, I think, David, of how crucial reading was and is to your development as a critical inquirer into the world around us. And as the pressures of our adult lives close in on us, whether they stem from work or from family commitments or from the unending menu of screen-centered entertainment options that exist in our internet age, it is surely important that we all make space for that transforming encounter with the book to still play a regular part in our brief time on earth to go back to the squirrel's quotation i know that finding the time for my own uninterrupted personal reading is certainly difficult during a boarding school term Mm. with its evening and weekend duties and its busy program of evening activities and all the rest of it do you have any personal tips for holding on to that important time for personal reading david i do and and there will be there will be possible, I think, for some listeners and, and impractical for others. Now, um, I'm I'm incredibly lucky in in having never 
never had a a, a full-time job. Uh, I've never done a nine-to-five Monday to Friday. My teaching job was always part-time. Um, at the most, it was three days a week. For many years, it was a day and a half, as I said at the beginning, and then it became two. And I've always juggled that with other creative outlets, as you've mentioned, writing, hosting live events, doing radio programs when I get the chance for the BBC and doing podcasts, but never having to be at a certain place, you know, every day, every day of the working week. Um, and so that's been incredibly helpful. I don't have, I don't have children. Um, so what I'm about to say next is in light, of, you know, is, is I've got to bear in mind that, that people like yourself, you know, with, with, with kids that it's, uh, um, you do have kids, don't you? Do you have kids? Yeah, I've got a daughter, eight-year-old daughter. Right. Um, that it was it was Andy Miller who does the backlisted podcast with John Mitchinson, all about old books, who wrote a book called A Year of Reading Dangerously. And as somebody working in the in the publishing industry, he realized that he'd never read most of the, you know, the important books that you're meant to have read. How do you find the time? How do you find the time to read War and Peace and Mill on the Floss and Ulysses? And uh, and so I'm going to offer the advice that he gives in that book, which is first of all, don't don't do it at night time before going to bed because you know you're at your doziest, and how many of us fall asleep whilst reading in bed, and how much do we retain? Do it in the morning, and if you love reading, if you want to find the time to get that reading in, just allow an extra half an hour in the morning. Make that extra half an hour if you can. If family commitments don't don't allow it, then that's totally understandable. But to get up in the morning, I don't do this every day, but I do it a lot. To get up in the morning, to make a coffee, to sit sometimes, you know, and have the sun, you know, the sun rising um, out the window is 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 wonderful. If it's summertime, then it's usually light when I get up. But to make that time and just to read for half an hour, and in that half an hour, you'll get you know, 20 pages, 25 pages under your belt, if you're lucky. And, and Andy Miller points out that no matter how big a book is, you know, like War and Peace, when you break it down into chunks of 25 pages, you find that in three weeks' time, you'll have read it if you do that every day. Um, and suddenly it, it doesn't seem as daunting as it, as it may once have done. I'd like to add that I've never read War and Peace, so I'm, just, I'm using this example hypothetically. But I did read, I read Alan Moore's Jerusalem, which came out a few years ago, which is, uh, I think it's 670,000 words. Uh, it's a wow. big, bloody book. Um, <laughs> and, and I had to approach that with that attitude of, I will do a little bit every day. I probably did more than half an hour. I probably did 45 minutes a day, but I'll do 45 minutes a day. And I think I think that book was done in in a couple of months, um, and I can't wait to read it again. Um, but uh, yeah, I have to put put a chunk of time aside to to do to do that. But um, so that that's the best advice that I was ever given was do it in the morning and make the time. So, mug of coffee, dressing gown. Sometimes I'll light a fire and just sit quietly on my own, and and with a fresh mind once the coffee's kicked in. Uh, and uh, and enjoy it, really, really enjoy it. Well, that's really good advice, David. Thank you very much for that. Pleasure. In the final section of the show, I'd like us to turn our thoughts to your experiences as a podcaster and radio documentary maker and to explore the contributions that the podcast 
contemporary lecture and speaking society talk might make to public education in the 21st century. We'll be right back after this. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. On the 24th to the 26th of January 2024, Bet UK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as Tech User Labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. Well, welcome back to the final part of our exploration of primary teaching, reading and public education with David Bramwell. We've talked about your personal reading journey, David, and your experiences in the primary classroom. I wonder if we might turn now to your work as a podcaster and founder of the Catalyst Club Speaking Society. Would you regard your podcasting and radio work as a natural development of your earlier teaching experiences? Um, in some ways, yeah, in some ways. I think, I think it also developed out of being taking myself to spoken word events and to uh, cabaret nights and kind of gong show type uh, nights that used to run in Brighton. So going on stage and talking to audiences, telling stories that may have uh, had some humour in them but weren't comedy monologues. I was never comfortable with the idea of doing comedy monologues, much more sharing interesting tales, I suppose, with audiences and hoping that the story was interesting enough that it would keep their imagination, that it would hold their imagination, even if, if it wasn't necessarily, you know, um, one gag followed by another gag, but it was more about the, the content. So I found myself enjoying going on stage and giving talks about, so the, there was um, there was a Tibetan Lama in 1956 called Dr. Tuesday Lobson Rampa, who, who wrote what is still the UK's best-selling book, on Tibetan Buddhism called the Third Eye, uh, but was the subject of a, of a private investigation um, the year after the book came out and was discovered to be an unemployed plumber 
called Cyril Hoskins from Devon, um, who put his back out whilst owl spotting one afternoon, uh, unable to work, uh, by some amazing leap of imagination, reinvented himself as a Tibetan Lama, um, thanks to a couple of books down the local library. It's such a wonderful story. It's such a British story. Um, uh, those are the kind of things that I found myself telling, you know, in more detail on stage, and then sort of developing into into talks and writing about in books. And so I think sort of the podcasting and the and the live lectures evolved out of the skills I learned through teaching, but also that fascination for for interesting stories and and the the growing sense that that we all have we all have our passions, we all have our stories to tell. Not everybody loves public speaking, and I would never try and coerce somebody into doing it who didn't want to. But there's been such a wonderful diversity of people from all walks of life um, at the at the nights that I've been running in in Brighton for 20 years, and the Catalyst Club, as you mentioned, which is an open platform for anyone to come and, and speak for 15 to 20 minutes on anything they want to, as long as it's a passion. And the recordings of these over the years became a podcast series called The Auditorium. Um, sadly, my co-host passed away a couple of years ago. And it, we decide, Those of us involved decided it was better to, to lay that to, the, to rest. So there's, you know, there's 50 or 60 episodes out there, which I'm really proud of, um, that are you know, based around unusual stories and topics um, from, from, yeah, as I say, people from all walks of life. And out of this evolved other pod, more ambitious podcasts that um, delve deep into into subject matter, um, and have some uh, yeah have some amazing guests. So so yes, teaching teaching and, and performing I think were the things that informed this work. So do you think we're living through a new era of non institutional public education, David? I mean, the Idler Magazine has its Idler Academy. Slightly Fox magazine has its podcast series on various forgotten books, and there are other podcasts of a similar sort. Various London social clubs, like the Eccentric Club, the New Sheridan Club, I think you've mentioned the last Tuesday Society in the past, have established their own speaking programmes for the layman. Yeah. Are we witnessing a more youthful revival of the great Victorian tradition of inclusive public lectures? I think we are. I mean, I'm biased because I because I yeah, I run one, but I think we are, and I think I think you know we 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 can't ignore the fact that social media has transformed the way in which we share information. And I'm I'm not a user user of TikTok, but um, but you know if you think of TikTok is is the sharing. It's not just people clowning around or you know pouring buckets of ice over their heads. There's a lot of of um, of serious information that's that shared. Uh, through you know through the likes of, of of TikTok and obviously you know YouTube as well um, and, uh, and 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 Facebook and Twitter um, but more the you know more the the more the kind of the TikTok short videos so so yes we all we all have something have a, a bit of knowledge information passion to share with each other and there are and there are ways of doing that that we no longer just have the gatekeepers of 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 kind of academia to um, or you know or author experts, etc. you know, being the ones who can just impart that information. I think there's still a snobbery around it. I mean, you've got, you've got speculative historians like Graham Hancock, who get a lot of flack for, you know, just kind of thinking big around, around subjects like, like history and, and do get shot down, you know, for, for not being in inverted commas, you know, kind of 
proper proper qualified historians like you know this person or that person but i think we're drawn to those people because they um they bring they can bring more fun and excitement to a to a topic and as long as there's always an an acknowledgement that these are ideas not facts then then i think that's that's okay and i and i do i i do like that format it's something and I, it was a club night that i wanted to go to and it didn't exist so i had to invent it and i had to host it and i didn't expect that it would last 20 years and and continue um we do them in shoreham i do them in shoreham and, and lewis close to brighton and then other people run them under different names in st leonard's eastbourne and haste and uh, worthing so they're all you know they're along the, the south coast here and um you know anybody who wants to set one up it's not difficult you just you just ask around find the people who want to come and and talk you'll always get a, a variety of of quality and a variety of personalities but um audiences seem to really like them With, my audiences don't even know what the topics are going to be so they just come along for for the night um, and only discover what you know what the topic's going to be once they're in, once they sat down with the drink. But I think you're right. I think I think there has been a, a great rise in popularity with stuff like this, and and I think it's it's the unique experience, isn't it? You know, we when when everything's on tap, when everything's so easy to access, when knowledge and information is just a click away, then it's more fun to go to a live event where there's somebody talking about their their passion for bees or their career as a bum reader um, or their collection of adjustable spanners um, or the, you know, the collected works of Jean-Paul Sartre. You know, we've had them all. Um, all of those are <laughs> genuine talks that we've had. Um, and uh, so, yeah, long may, long may it continue. Fantastic. And your Adventures in Utopia podcast seems to fulfill an enthusiasm for unusual and uplifting angles on modern life. It seems to be a slightly more seriously inclined um, project. What have you learned about the potential of the podcast as a medium for the democratisation of public learning through that experience? Well, if I was, there's a, I've decided to make life very difficult for myself with that podcast series in that but a high degree of satisfaction, I think, in that they are they're documentaries. So it's a it's a it's a documentary podcast series of which we've done um, 10, 10 full episodes now and, and about three or four short episodes. And that allows me to have a, a number of guests to work hard editing. And, the, you know, these are all skills I, I learned through working with with the BBC making programs with them. Uh, and a I suppose a chance for me to explore subjects that fascinate me, but will force me to dig deep to understand them. I mean, I, I we did an episode on um, donut economics, alternative economic models, circular models, ecological models, ones that move us away from rampant capitalism and and, and constant growth and greed. Um, and that was a you know that was a steep learning curve for me, uh, and all the more rewarding for it. So, I've. It's been, yeah, it was important that, that these were presented as, as narratives and unfolding of the stories and themes that, um, that I was diving into um, and battling as hard as I could to get the guests that I wanted, to get people like Kate Rayworth, who wrote you know definitive book on donut economics, to get George Monbiot, um, to get Sharon Blackie, the mythologist, to get Tim Smith from the Eden Project, uh, to get John Lloyd, you know, who, who, um, 
who was the uh, creator of, of QI and, and producer of Blackadder. And uh, um, so all that episode hasn't gone out yet. That's going to be a look at uh, intelligence, our relationship with the word intelligence. What, what ties them all together is a, is, a, is a belief that we have lived for too long in an age of individualism and selfishness and specialization uh, and separation from nature to our cost. And I'm seeing themes of connectivity and ecology occurring across the board in art and culture and, and science. You know, you look at a scientist like Merlin Sheldrake's book on, on the mycelium networks, which we're just starting to, to kind of comprehend how, how wonderful and bizarre uh, they are and how they confound our relationship with with nature and, and and systems that everything is symbiotic it's not that it's not the thing which is the exception to the rule as i was taught at school and that our genes are not selfish that we we are not driven by selfishness as dawkins um you know kind of popularized that idea which in turn fueled neo neoliberalism and and some of the more aggressive forms of of, of capitalism in the 80s and, and onwards but actually everything relies on everything else so these are the themes that I'm searching for. So there's a prejudice, there's a bias within this podcast series. I hope that lots of people listening would 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 think that um, these things are important uh, and are about redressing the balance. But you know, it depends on our politics and the way that we we look at the world. But yes, I've been sort of diving deep into into political, economic, agro ecological um, themes. And more playful themes like a resurgence of interest in, in dreams and how our dreams can can help our, um, you know, help, help us psychologically and even in, with healing and looking at sound and experimental approaches to sound. So it's been it's been an opportunity for me to explore subjects that fascinate me and and wouldn't have happened without the, the love and support and financial support of the Druidic Order. Um, who I joined, who out of extreme kindness just said, we like the work that you do, David, and we've got a little bit of money in the bank. So we'd like to fund the podcast series and just go and do whatever you want to do, um, which is everybody's dream as a teacher as well, isn't it? Just being mm. that dream to be just left alone. It's like, we trust you, just go and teach. That's, you know, <laughs> that's all you want to hear. Almost um, to work with the community for the community. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's yes it's been a privilege to to be able to do that well we're nearly out of time David so thank you very much indeed for such an entertaining insight into the joys and struggles of podcasting and documentary making for public radio it seems to me that the most memorable lessons from my school days were as much about the character of the person delivering the lesson mm. as about the content of the lesson itself and in a way, I suppose, the podcast must be a logical extension of that, except the podcast, of course, is a lecture that can be enjoyed while out walking the dog on a chilly November morning mm. or lying in a warm bath at the end of a hard-working day. The best podcasts are surely portable lessons that we can carry about with us wherever we go. And the more podcasts I listen to, the more convinced I am that podcasting represents an opportunity for us to rediscover some of that 19th century zeal for inspiring popular interest in those stories, discoveries and questions that presently sit at the outer peripheries of public consciousness. 
We're going to play out on your Moomins track, David. So is there anything you'd like to offer us in way of short explanation before we play that track at the end? Yeah, this this is um this hasn't this this hasn't been released yet. Um I'm I'm back in the studio on Wednesday to master the album that that this song will will be on. And uh, but I thought because of because of the the themes that we picked for this conversation and and knowing I'd be talking about Moomin Land Midwinter, I thought it would be it would be churlish not to not to share this this track. So this is this is an exclusive um and it is it was recorded so back in february we played live at the lewis psychedelic festival and we don't play very often as a band there's too many of us for a start there's there's i think there's eight of us on stage um sometimes we play with the sea shanty choir and then there's about 13 and once we played with the brighton and hove concert band and there was 56 of us on stage and we couldn't repeat that but it was great fun um and this was uh, this yes, this is one of the songs from a from a set we did for the psychedelic festival, which we're really happy with. So we decided to go into the studio and record uh, that as a live session, which we'd never done before as a band. So it's going to be, I think, our tenth or eleventh um, album. I, I I don't know, and um, it's yeah, it's it's a musical journey, courtesy of of Dovey Anson's Moomin Lamid Winter, and probably the only song to mention the dweller under the sink to name check one of the characters from, from that book. Um, so I hope, uh, I hope people have enjoyed this conversation. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, Christopher. Thank you for having me as a guest and, and I hope they like the song. Brilliant. Well, we'll play out on that in a couple of moments. I'll just say I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation this evening, David. It's been really pleasing to hear some of your positive memories of entering the teaching profession and fascinating to hear about all the adventures you have undertaken since completing your PGC in Brighton in the 1990s, and we've only really scratched the surface on some of those. It would be great to have you back on a future show to explore some of the educational practices you encountered during your explorations of Druidism, psychogeography, and some of the world's strangest utopian communities, Topics I don't doubt that rarely get treated in the pages of the Times Educational Supplement or Schools Week. So thank you very much indeed for your contributions tonight and for some truly mind-expanding inspiration as we go into the longest two or three weeks of the year. Thank you very much, David. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success.
On the 24th to the 26th of January 2024, BetUK is back and even better for educators. New for 2024, Table Talks empowers educators to collaborate openly and connect deeply with like-minded individuals in the education space, as well as tech user labs, the brilliant new tutorials and working groups at BET, where technology users will learn how to get more out of their institution's tech from the top education technology experts in the world. Whatever your goal, you'll find it at BET 2024. Educators go free. Get your tickets today at www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration. So that's just about it from us this evening and from me for 2023 as Teachers Talk Radio will be taking a well-earned break on New Year's Eve. While we're on holiday, though, do take the opportunity to catch up on anything you've missed with our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters at www.ttradio.org. If you would like to learn a bit more about different perspectives on silent corridors, then Yasmin and Bagger's show from earlier today is worth listening to. Or if you'd like to know more about the history of childhood from the Agricultural Revolution to the Third Industrial Revolution, then Darren Lester's show from yesterday clearly has your name on it. Both shows can be found from the website by searching by topic or host name at the top of the Listen Back page. And if you have something you want to say or ask others about education anywhere on planet Earth, then perhaps you should consider applying to join the station as a show host. We are always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less familiar educational settings. Full details can be found on our website, www.ttradio.org. That's all from me for this month. We're going to hear David play us out with an as yet unreleased exclusive track recorded with his Oddfellows Casino project. So thank you for listening. Enjoy Advent and the Christmas season when it arrives. And I'll wave you off into 2024 with the sounds of the Moomin inspired the winter creatures. Goodbye.
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.